Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Have you ever been the victim of peer pressure? Maybe it was something as simple as finding yourself dressing exactly like someone you looked up to, or maybe it was pressure to attend an event you didn't want to attend. When I was in high school, the girls on my volleyball team all thought it was cool to shoplift. I told myself constantly I would never follow in their footsteps, but one day I gave in to the pressure to fit in my senior year. Of course, I was caught, and to make sure we all got the point, the store called the police and said we had to call our parents to come pick us up. In that case, that meant my dad, who also happened to be an undercover police officer. I'm sure that probably ranked right up there for him as the most embarrassing moment of his life. A peer is a person in our social circle that typically informs and enforces societal norms. The terms peer pressure and peer influence are both centered on this definition. Maybe you've also heard the term super peer. Just a decade ago, we referred to the super peer as the most influential person in the group, the ring leader. Now, if you look up the term, it's kind of shaken off its previously negative connotation has become a pathway for global influence. You've probably also heard the term super spreader. In the COVID era, a super spreader is someone who is most, mostly asymptomatic but infects many other people, often unwittingly. I actually first heard the term when state college administration wanted to open college campuses, but professors complained that the students they were supposedly there to serve were steeped in contagion and a threat to the very existence of the professors' lives. They were deemed super spreaders. In a sobering adaptation process, media has now embodied both of those roles. It has become both a super peer and a super spreader. Is this the same media influence that's faced the U.S. historically? Not at all. The content of programming has changed dramatically. According to a 2005 study by the Kaiser Family Foundation, the number of sexual scenes on television has nearly doubled over a decade. The study, which covered a 1,000 hours of programming, found that 70% of the top 20 shows watched by teens contained sexual content, with 45% of those containing sexual behavior, and only a very small percentage depicting any type of consequence for that behavior. Kaiser Family Foundation Vice President Vicki Rideout called those high stakes, adding that the medium of television has drawn has a draw like no other. She said, television has the power to bring issues of sexual risk and responsibility to life in a way that no sex ed class or public health brochure really can. The study showed a breakdown of percentages of, of sexual content by specific genre. Movies were 92%, sitcoms 87%, drama series 87%, and soap operas 85%. Ironically, the one genre of television programming that had the least amount of sexual content was reality shows, 28%. Perhaps this is reflective of an important truth. Sexual behavior is far less of a component of daily life than television producers would have viewers believe. Even more disturbing is the rise of sexual portrayals between strangers or first dates and a more than double increase in portrayals of risky sexual behavior. That increase in content is certainly disturbing on many levels, but 
Does watching that kind of content impact a viewer's life choices, decision-making process, choice of friends, or behavior? Yes, yes, and yes. In the book Children and the Media, Strasberger details the impact of media portrayals on a, ch- on a child's value systems. We'll look at some of those compelling statistics in a moment. But with the dizzying array of media choices available today, are kids even watching television? According to Kaiser Family Foundation, yes. In fact, children and teens are spending more time than ever in front of both new and old media. In a study, Generation M Media in the lives of 8 to 18-year-olds, third to second graders reported using 8.33 hours of media a day, which brings the full media use up an hour from just five years prior, so from seven hours to eight hours a day. Now, the biggest increase came in the categories of video games and computer entertainment. Multimedia tasking jumped from 16% of media time to 26% per time. In other words, 26% of their media time. In other words, kids are not just disengaged from the concept of peaceful silence or thinking creatively about how to play, but they're also increasingly engaged in multiple forms of entertainment at once, which is going to have a significant effect on their brain development and their learning style. Kids are, as Drew Atman put it, multitasking and consuming many different kinds of media at once. Most impacting, though, is a study in the Journal of Human Behavior and Emerging Technology which found that when considered independently, the data shows that teen and young adults spend over, are you ready for this? 75 hours a week, which is 10 hours and 45 minutes a day on media. This multimedia tasking has become prevalent at every age group, certainly. Media experts Strasberger and Wilson note that the average child lives in a home with three televisions and a video game player and a computer, although some of those stats I think are a little higher now. But a full 68% of 8 to 18-year-olds have a TV in their room, which pediatricians, by the way, say do not do. Don't put a TV. Not only is it isolating, but again, we're inviting that stranger into the kid's room. And 49% have a video game access in the room too. So, and of course, we know that the ubiquitous screen of the cell phone is also always present. Outside of their rooms, many young people's homes have the TV as a constant companion. Nearly two-thirds of Americans, 63%, say the TV is, quote, usually on during meals. That is, by the way, interestingly enough, the same percentage of Americans who are overweight or obese. I think that's an interesting comparison. And half say that they live in homes where the TV is left on most or all of the time. There's literally no neural rest day, no brain time that's down, that's quiet. There's no be still and know that I'm God moment in the home. The average child in the United States spends about six hours a day using media. Now, again, we're seeing those numbers dramatically increasing when we add in the multimedia tasking uh, numbers as well. And nearly half of those, 49%, say there are no rules in their home about how much they watch, how what they can watch. Children over seven say they almost never watch television with their parents. So from this macro perspective, Today's youth are spending about a third of their waking day with some form of media. And more and more often, it's when they're home alone or in their rooms alone. So it's less and less about a community experience. The KFF study showed that multimedia tasking is certainly the new form and the new norm because it's kind of the skipping back and forth from one form of constant entertainment to the next. And the important question, I think, is what are kids filling their minds and their hearts with it? Parents, for the most part, seem to have no idea. 
Now, parents do they do say they have concerns about children's media exposure, but about 53% of 8 to 18-year-olds say there's no rule. There are no rules set for watching TV at home. So the parent may say there's a concern, but there's literally no rule to follow up on that. Another 20% says there are rules, but they're not enforced. So we're seeing kids working even more than a full-time job on media every week. Definitely something we need to be concerned about. The KFF study also found that students with the lowest grades were more likely to have spent more time playing video games and less time reading. Interestingly enough, this correlation was also evidenced in emotional stability and peer relationships. 18% of the 8 to 18 population recorded being sad, unhappy, or having few friends also spent the most amount of time with media exposure, 9 hours and 44 minutes a day as opposed to 8 hours and 7 minutes a day. Remember our earlier study, we talked about the high rate of depression, the correlation between teen girls' use of, of social media and depression. As former MIT Dean Lester Thoreau once said, values are not and will not be inculcated by the family, the church, or other social institutions in either the present or the media. They are and will be inculcated by the visual and electronic media. That is a sobering reality that we are going to break down right now. What marketing strategies prevail and what mindsets have resulted. Think about a few of these compelling quotes. These are from this incredible book, Strasberger and Wilson. You can find a lot of their research online, uh, but this is from the text, Children, Adolescents, and Media, a massive and incredible resource. About $12 billion a year is spent in the United States on advertising and marketing directly to children. That's doubled uh, in the last 10 years. Teens directly spend about $155 billion which has increased incredibly. Absentee parents are cited as one of the main factors of increased spending, so they get kind of guilt money because their parents aren't there. 45% of girls ages 4 to 11 say that they think ads always or mostly tell the truth, so they're a target for these unscrupulous advertisers. Most adults believe they're not personally affected by mass media, though they believe others are. This is a phenomenon that we call third-person effect, and it, it demonstrates this propensity we have for blind spots. Adolescents are generally more susceptible to antisocial peer pressure when they have poor relationships with their parents. Those EE campaigns we talked about a couple of episodes ago really capitalize on the power of that virtual peer pressure. Teens perceive celebrities as more trustworthy, more competent, more attractive than non-celebrity endorsers in nearly identical ads. Kids who watch a lot of TV want more advertised toys and consume more advertised foods than do kids with lighter TV habits. Again, advertising works. And the majority of those ads are for junk food. So that kind of does go back to our correlation with the um, stats on overweight as well. 2.5 million people in America are victims of violent injuries each year, and homicide is the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. I know we've talked about some of those, but those correlations between the violent acts on TV, 70% of primetime shows contain violence, 90% of children's shows contain violence, and interestingly enough, um, television shows like um, cartoons actually have a high rate of violence. It's really interesting. And when kids see someone laughing because of a violent act, that to them is an interpretation that tells them it's something they should do. It's a positive response. The American Psychological Association says that the average U.S. child or teen views each year 
10,000 examples of rape, murder, and aggressive assaults. Now, there are some correlative stats that we can help to balance that out. There was a large national study by the Council of Economic Advisors that found that 7 to 12th graders who ate dinner with a parent regularly versus those who didn't had higher, higher levels of being able to resist some of these peer pressure influences. Really fascinating. Though the United States spends more than $12 billion a year on advertising and marketing to children, a number of other countries have made positively pro-social demonstrations in favor of the health of their citizens, especially their youngest. In Sweden, TV ads targeting kids under 12 are not permitted. In Greece, no toy ads are permitted until after 10 p.m. In Belgium, no commercials are permitted during kids programming. In Australia, Canada, and England, there are no ads that target preschoolers whatsoever permitted. Now, Why do these countries take such a firm stance on television ads for children? They're aware of the power of influence. But in America, it seems like advertisers are more than willing to exploit our youngest citizens for a chance at brand imprinting or indirect expenditure. Advertisements have an overt effect on behavior. Companies will readily drop millions of dollars to create a whiny kid culture at the grocery store or retail shop. That whine of materialism is music to their ears. More targeted advertisements mean more predictive outcomes. Television ads affect beliefs, beliefs affect behavior. In order to escape their grasp, we have to be wise and cautious consumers of media. We have to be media literate. In this media central age, the dam holding back society's destructive allowances has been torn down and the flooding torrent of information, that good, the bad, the sordid is leaving no person or age group unscathed. Excessively convenient and influential media messages have formed this stagnant pool at the feet of the youngest citizens of society, and the waters continue to arise. An informed mode of analysis is very important for us in order to form a hypothesis, right? Narrow and balanced research stems from the utilization of sources that offer either undying support or vehement denial of the cause. There's no middle ground. If we're trying to represent a cross-referential approach, then we want to look at the evidence put forth by both sides. If we only consume one brand of media shared by the common purse strings of a handful of owners, our view will be necessarily skewed. Our research will be imbalanced. Our mindset will be myopic. From a biological and a sociological standpoint, Americans are indeed ripe for influence, and we want to make sure that influence is going in the right direction. When our family lived in Northern California, we would often go for months at a time without a single drop of rain, which was quite a different phenomenon coming from Florida, where it rained all the time. The heavens would be dry. There'd be one cloudless sky after another, one one day followed by another day of dry, dry, dry skies. The fields would be brown or golden, as we like to call them, and plants of people alike would languish in the triple-digit heat. When the first rain would come in September or community or in October, it would be this community event. People would stop to stare. Cars would pull over. Students would yank out their earbuds and walk in awe toward classroom windows. There was an awakening. We would suddenly remember the sweetness of the air, the smell of rain on parched pavement, the dewy feel of freshness that alerts us to the coming of fall splendor. There is, as Alice Walker once noted in an awakening of her own, a, quote, great and gorgeous light that draws our attention to realities we've overlooked along our gradual path of disconnect. 
It's my hope that as you're hearing this episode in similar fashion, you'll be stirred to this realization that you'll turn to the windows of illumination and watch the rainfall, smell the earth, live once more in the light of the sun instead of the faint blue haze of the electronic realm. Because honestly, most Americans are tragically caught up in the undertow of addiction. You know, in 1885, the world's most consumed liquid outside of water was invented, and that was Coca-Cola. It was named for two medicinal ingredients, the extract of coca leaves and cola nuts. The exact amount of cocaine, coca leaves, in the original formula is difficult to verify, but according to the unauthorized history of Coca-Cola, the percentages may have been as high as 60 milligrams of cocaine per serving. During the late 1800s, many doctors and dentists prescribed cocaine in various forms and amounts to their patients, but by the early 1900s, those harmful effects, namely addiction and death, became part of the general knowledge base. So Coca-Cola gradually began removing cocaine from its product until 1926, when it was deemed fully cocaine-free. Now, maybe it's difficult for some people to imagine that a highly educated doctor would freely prescribe a deadly and addictive substance like cocaine to his or her patients. In modern America, the drug is obviously not only illegal, but it's battled daily through massive sums of tax dollars as leaders attempt to rid the country of the destructive substance and its influence, rightly so. A country concerned about its citizens' health and well-being should be necessarily responsible to educate those citizens about potential harm, as well as protect them from further harm. If it's a drug, such as in the case of cocaine, we ban it completely or make it available in measurable amounts like would be the case with prescription drugs. When it was discovered that secondhand smoke causes cancer, states began making it illegal to smoke in public buildings, and this served to protect the health of the citizens of our country. Leaders felt like one person's right to smoke cigarettes should not tread on another person's right to a healthy public environment. Smokers fought the ban because obviously once a person's addicted, that sense of logical analysis is overrun by emotionalism. It's difficult to think clearly in the captivating presence of addiction. When bans were sought by the general public for the safety of citizens, addicts pleaded with the government to allow cigarette smoking in public. It took many battles to win protection for the people's health. Now smoking has been marginalized to a large degree, but the public, most importantly, has been educated. We can't expect citizens to make healthy choices for their lives if we don't also widely publicize the facts about healthy about health and disease. Why not give the people the opportunity to make educated choices? Yes, shareholders are happy when smoking is promoted in sitcoms and movies. It means a higher income, but that increase comes at the expense of every citizen who forms the base of this great country. It's a parasitic supply and demand relationship that will ultimately drain the life from its host. Though companies tied to financial profit in these arenas may continue to decry the accusations of influence as falsehood, respected researchers have demonstrated again and again the effect of mass media programming on human behavior. So at the very least, we have to educate citizens on the potential implications of influence. Now, there are a number of ways that media can influence behavior. In some of our earlier shows, we talked about the impact of socialization, the biological makeup of the human brain, how our brain makes predictions of future behavior based on its its existing paradigm. A relatively new discovery in the arena of media influence is this idea of the virtual peer. 
Dr. Brown wrote about this in his research at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he found that music, media, especially music for 18 to 25s, was this virtual peer. And he published his research in the Journal of the Academy of Pediatrics, where he showed that exposure to things like sexual content leads to early sexual involvement. Higher levels of exposure lead to higher levels of involvement. One researcher said that media has become this compelling like a sex educator. And it's this super peer where teens and children are being chided to engage in the same kind of behavior. So Brown's research is really compelling for the study that we're talking about. Given this similarity of these findings, the researchers recommended that people begin focusing on the tremendous past mass potential that media has for negative impact. It's this highly influential role in socialization. And when we couple that with third person syndrome, like as well as this general arrogance about the potential for influence, it's that's often downplayed as a source. Parents would do well to evaluate modern media, to think about the values that are being portrayed. And if those values are out of line with one's family, then we really have to think about cutting those out. It's had a negative, a deleterious effect on our collective psyche. You know, we've looked at our nation has has gone to this nation of excess from wares to waistline, and it's changed our paradigms. Our paradigms have become more materialistic in origin. Our um, our Our life goals have become different. One of the researchers at Pew Research found that 18 to 26-year-olds said that their main goals in life were wealth and fame, this narcissistic approach. And when when when, 18 to 25s are interviewed, they say that the people they relate to outside of their closest friends are celebrities. They relate to them. They're their virtual peers, their screen families, their print families. It's so strange when we say it out loud, but it's this new new era of them feeling connected to these people who are ultimately strangers. In addition to reminding us that these desires for fame and fortune are being fueled in large part by media, the authors of the study find it, point out that the youngest generations were raised not only in the blue glare of the television screen, but also in the spotlight of their parents' video camera. They grew up as the stars of their home, and now they expect to be treated as celebrities as well. They're accustomed to being noticed, to having been showered with accolades and awards. One of the young men that was researched uh, put it this way. He said, society raised us where money is glamorous and everybody wants to be glamorous. He said, society raised us. Did you catch that part of the quote? And I I get that, you know, again, my generation was that MTV generation, so many things to break off, so many things to fall out of line with, so much to change in in a mindset because of that upbringing. And this is now the sad legacy that we're passing on to the next generation. So what can you do? There's so much at stake if we don't begin to alter the next generation's relationship with the screen. Start by assessing the amount of time the screen is demanding in your life, your children's lives. What values are being inculcated through its ubiquitous presence? Remember, we will become like the company we keep. So whether it's a group of shoplifting volleyball players or the media super peer pushing you or your children to believe or behave a certain way, we need to take action. Pull the plug, press the off button, get outside and feed your human relationships, not your virtual ones. What we meditate on, we practice and what we practice, we become. 
Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.